0: Some years ago, I preached a sermon uh, on the story of the raising of Lazarus. It's a story that you know. It's from John's Gospel. Lazarus was desperately ill. His sisters Mary and Martha sent for Jesus to come and heal him. Jesus gets the message but decides not to hurry. And by the time he gets there, Lazarus has been dead and buried for several days. Martha chides Jesus for being so slow. Mary weeps. Jesus weeps. He tells those gathered to roll the stone away from the tomb. And they protest that by this time Lazarus will be rotting and smelling to high heaven. But Jesus persists and they remove the stone. Then Jesus calls Lazarus to come on out from the tomb. And Lazarus does, all stiff and stumbling, tangled up in his burial clothes. A miracle of the first order. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, I don't remember what all I said. Um, it's one of those gospel stories that makes a preacher sweat, since what can you possibly say about such a story that's not going to seem puny and anemic uh, in the light of resurrection? I don't know what I said, which is probably just as well. What I do remember, what I do remember as clear as a bell and as plain as day is what our brother Elton Mosier said to me afterward. Now, some of you don't know brother Elton. Uh, he lives at Garden Spot Village with his wife, Rosa, They've not been able to come to town on Sundays for some months now. But back then, in the days of the Lazarus sermon, they were almost always here, sitting about a third of the way up uh, on the left side of the sanctuary. And on that Sunday of the Lazarus sermon, Elton said something to me which I'd never forgotten. He came to me after the service and said, Well, you know, Lazarus died again. (laughs) Now, at the time, what struck me was well, the humor in those words, right? Um, yeah, he was raised from the dead, but eventually Lazarus went right back into that tomb, maybe wearing his old grave clothes that, his, that Mary or Martha had carefully put away for just such an eventuality, because sooner or later, Lazarus would die again, did die again. But the more I thought about it, the more convinced I am that what Elton said to me uh, that morning was in fact something more profound than clever, more deep, than witty, more theologically significant than humorous. Elton's words reminded me that every miracle is temporary, that every healing is temporary, that in the end death awaits us all, saint and sinner, just and unjust. Death comes to us all. Now the last generation standing when Christ completes the promised redemption, well, they'll be exempt. But for the rest of us, for all of us, since the beginning of recorded history until this very October Sunday, we all die. Whatever healing we pray for, whatever healing we receive, is finally only temporary, which would be a terrible thing if that were the end of the story. Last Sunday, Pastor Sue preached on two healing stories. The first was the healing of that old Aramean general Naaman, and the second was the healing of ten guys with leprosy, one of whom was a Samaritan and also the only one with enough manners and gratitude to come back and tell Jesus thanks for the healing. Familiar stories, inspiring and also maddening, at least when it comes to figuring out what they say to us in our present condition. And in her sermon, Sue named the elephant in the room when she reminded us that not everyone gets healed that even if we are as willing as Naaman to lay down our pride and as bold as those lepers who begged Jesus for healing, we may not receive the same miraculous outcome. Being good 21st century Westerners, we feel a compulsion to figure out why that is, why some get healed and some don't. And Pastor Sue wisely resisted that compulsion, instead inviting us to abide in mystery, to abide here in this in-between place, in between the promise of healing and its fulfillment. Now, it's not an especially cozy place to abide. After all, our eyes are drawn to Elisha, who didn't even leave the house, right? But just passed word through his servant, and Naaman was healed. A a miracle tossed through the door, as casually as we'd toss our used napkin into the trash can. Our eyes go to Jesus, and who can fault us? Um, As he simply speaks a word, and within the blinking of an eye, all the skin diseases on ten bodies go away. Another casual miracle done in passing. We see these miracles and the way they come so freely and our compulsion to ask why them and not me becomes even stronger. I'm revisiting Pastor Sue's sermon from last week because it occurred to me that the healing stories that she wrestled with then are part of a larger biblical conversation, a conversation in which our texts for today play a role. Last week we witnessed two miraculous healings, healings given without any struggle on the part of those being healed. You remember Naaman's irritation at being asked to do something so trivial uh, to receive healing when he was expecting he'd be asked to do something heroic. This week, we witnessed two people struggling with prayer, grabbing on and refusing to let go until the blessing is given, and then knocking and knocking and knocking on the judge's door until he finally relents and gives justice. Jacob, utterly bereft and finally aware of his vulnerability and his pending comeuppance at the hands of his brother Esau, sends his family on ahead while he settles down by the Jabbok River and waits for whatever is coming. Attacked in the night by someone, a man, Jacob wrestles all night long and is injured in the process. And as the sun is rising, the man tries to flee, but Jacob won't let him go. Jacob won't let him go until the man gives him a blessing. The man asks Jacob for his name, and Jacob tells him, and the man changes Jacob's name. He says that from now on his name will be Israel, because Jacob has wrestled with God and has prevailed. A stunning comment worthy of its own sermon. Jacob asks again for the man's name. The man asks why Jacob wants to know his name, and then the man blesses Jacob, now called Israel. And Jacob names the place where he wrestled all night with a man, where he wrestled all night with an angel or with God. Jacob names the place Peniel, which means the face of God, claiming that he'd seen God face to face and lived to tell about it. Another stunning comment, also worthy of its own sermon. And the sun comes up. Jacob Israel walks away limping, alive but with a perpetual reminder of what happened to him there by the river, a mark on his body that stays with him till the day he dies, a sign that it's not always so easy being blessed by God. Then there's a story of the persistent widow, a parable told about the need to pray always and to never give up praying, no matter what may come of it. The judge, who neither feared God nor anybody else, held captive in his lair by the widow's persistent pleas for justice, Banging on his door, marching around his house, blowing trumpets and beating pots together, tossing pebbles through his windows, filling the inbox on his answering machine, getting her neighbors to whisper down the lane, driving the judge mad until he finally relented and gave her the judgment she wanted. And he did so not because he believed that her cause was just or that her plea was worthy of his mercy, but because she was driving him out of his ever-loving mind. And Jesus explains that if this misanthropic, godless grump of a judge would give the widow what she wanted because of her persistence, how much more will God do in response to the prayers of the faithful? How much more quickly will God grant justice to those who pray for it day and night? So the only question is, will anybody still be praying when the Son of Man comes? As I said, I read these stories and I want to place them in conversation with our text from last week because I think they broaden that conversation by revealing that prayer is more than simply asking and receiving, a quid pro quo, a linear path from the subject to the object. Prayer is like that sometime, but it can also be like a long, painful slog through the desert or an all-night wrestling match with someone stronger and faster or like staying awake all night calling on the name of the one who can bring justice after which we may well receive the thing, the answer that we sought, but we may also find ourselves limping from that place of prayer, blessed but also wounded, marked by our encounter with God, reminded that even our newly won blessing is temporary, that even our newly won justice is temporary, that even our newly given healing will one day give way to death. And again, if that were the end of the story, We'd have good reason to despair. I've often wondered why it is that Jesus seems so unimpressed by his own miraculous deeds. Um, You know, I mean, he touches someone and they can suddenly see or hear or walk. And then Jesus quickly tells them not to make such a big deal about it. Okay, I mean, yes, go tell the priests and get yourself reinstated in the worshiping community, but otherwise keep your trap shut. Demons go blabbing all the time about the ones standing in front of them until Jesus casts them out in order to shut them up, not to mention freeing the ones possessed, who he then also routinely tells to, well, let's just keep this little exorcism to ourselves, shall we? They tell him he's the son of God. He tells them to zip it. Over and over again throughout the Gospels, this scene is repeated. And in, in fact, there are points When Jesus suggests to the disciples that that signs and wonders are really no big deal in themselves, but are intended to point away from themselves towards something bigger, truer, and much more important, which is the coming reign of God. God's reign on earth as it is in heaven. Miracles are signs of that coming reign. They're not the reign itself. The reign itself, the kingdom of God, is so much bigger and so much wider and so much more all-encompassing and so much more forever then the temporary signs and wonders that we call healing and that rain which is already here and has been ever since God became flesh and lived among us that rain carries its inhabitants where nothing else has been able to take them which is to that place beyond death the place of no more dying no more pain no more sickness or sorrow or mourning or crying permanent and eternal and forever healing is found there. Salvation is found there. Redemption is found there. We are found there. And there we will live whole and healed and forever. I mean, this is our hope, right? This is our hope. Eternal life. Salvation. Healing with a capital H. Permanent. No more dying. Forever alive with Christ and in the presence of God. This is our hope. Now, let's be honest. It takes faith to remain in that hope, to keep on believing despite all the evidence to the contrary, the weakness and frailty of our bodies, the weakness and frailty of our hearts and minds, the way the world is, all damaged and broken and bent on its own destruction, the prayers that seem to go unanswered, the promises that seem to be unkept, the wishes that seem never to come to pass, the bitterness we feel, though we don't admit it, the bitterness we feel when someone else's prayer is answered, Someone else's miracle is given. Someone else's blessing is granted. And our prayers seem to simply hover over us like a cloud of gnats, never leaving us for somewhere higher, but just sort of buzzing mindlessly around our heads. We see lepers healed, and our loved ones die. And we wonder, why them, not us? Why them, not us? We all go through this one time or another. Bad things happen all the time. And they happen to everybody. And even if we manage to make it all the way through life unscathed, we all die, our lives end, and we don't get that one more hour or day or year, no matter how hard we pray. Now this doesn't mean that temporary miracles aren't important. We are, after all, temporary creatures, time bound. While a thousand years may be like a day to the Lord, the biblical Three score years and ten, it's a lifetime to us. Sooner or later, we have to come to terms with the truth of that old poetry that tells us that we human beings, we do wither and fade and pass away. We are temporary creatures. And so we pray for what we know to be temporary miracles because this is all the time we've got on this earth. And so we reach for every last bit of healing, every last bit of justice, every last minute of life For us, temporary creatures, temporary miracles are important, which means we don't give up any hope of prayers being answered here and now. The stories of Naaman and the ten lepers tell us otherwise. And it means we don't simply quit asking when healing doesn't come right away, that we simply give it up and pack it in and turn away from God. No. The stories of Jacob and the persistent widow tell us otherwise. We pray for healing. We pray persistently for healing. We grab hold of God. And we don't let go. And we keep on banging and banging and banging on, hanging on until we hear God speak words of blessing to us. We bang the drums. We ring the doorbell. We knock, knock, knock on heaven's door until justice comes. And God acts like God is supposed to act. We pray and trust that God will keep the promise and will act swiftly. And we do so even when swiftly means a lifetime. When Jesus does come, we want to be still praying, still abiding in faith still hanging in there, awaiting the promised salvation. But let's not forget that all the miracles in this world, wonderful and blessed as they are, are only signs of the salvation to come. They only point towards something larger, more glorious, richer and deeper and wider, and yes, something permanent, eternal. Temporary healings are signs of that final healing to come, our hope, the salvation promised to us by God and given to us through the life and death and resurrection of our own Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, we want an end to suffering here and now, whether our own suffering or the suffering of a loved one or the suffering of humanity. And yes, we want an end to conflict and violence and killing, and we want these things now. But even these things, necessary things, are only signs of what is to come. This doesn't diminish their importance. Signs, after all, point the way. They show us that we're moving in the right direction. But our hope, or so we proclaim, is not for a temporary end to suffering or a temporary end to violence, though we'd likely be satisfied with either. Our hope is for the salvation that will end both forever and ever. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, we pray. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, we pray. When Brother Elton reminded me that Lazarus, fresh from the tomb and breathing again, would sooner or later die all over again, I first thought it was just a clever thing to say, a witticism. But, but I've since become convinced that it's just good theology. I'm convinced that what Brother Elton said points to something bigger than temporary healing, something bigger even than being called forth from the tomb for a few weeks or months or years. I'm convinced that what Elton called me to remember was that my hope, our hope, is in something eternal, something permanent, something higher and deeper than anything that is given this side of death. My hope, our hope, is the fulfillment of every promise God has ever made to us human beings. It's the restoration of everything that we have broken, It's the redeeming of the whole creation. A miracle so big we can't even imagine it. A miracle so big we can only pray for it in faith. I mean, isn't this what we really are hoping for? Isn't this really what we're praying for? Isn't this something worth hanging on to God for, banging on the door for, staying up all night and every night, praying that it will come to pass? Isn't this the one sure thing? Not something that may or may not come to pass, but something that shall come to pass, that will come to pass. The answer to every question, the end to every sorrow, the putting away of everything that does not give life, the promise fulfilled, the hope of our salvation. Isn't this the backdrop against which we pray for miracles? Isn't this the backdrop against which we seek healing? Isn't this the one true thing against which everything temporary is to be measured? The resurrection after which we never die again. The healing from which we will come away never again to no disease. The blessing given from which we walk away not limping but whole and bound and maybe even bounding for glory. The swift and sure and true justice granted by the God in whose presence we will live forever. The true end of this story. The true end of this story. Which means we do not despair. Because whatever may come, whether a miraculous answer to a very specific prayer or a lifetime of wrestling and knocking, whether a quick and clear miracle or a slow walk through the wilderness, whatever may come, we have this promise. Our hope is in the Lord who will redeem us who will save us, who will heal us and make us whole. Our hope is in the Lord, who is not bound by time, but is eternal and promises that we will one day be raised up never to die again. No longer temporary creatures living a temporary existence, but redeemed ones living forever in God's own presence. Yes, we long for healing, even if we know it's only temporary. Yes, we long for an end to suffering, even if we know it's only temporary. Yes, we long for an end to violence even if we know it's only temporary. We long for these things. and Not only for the respite that they provide, we long for them too because they remind us that what we proclaim about the future is true. They're signs that point us toward that greater truth beyond, that ultimate promise, the eternal backdrop against which we live and die and are raised again. And so, dear ones, let us not despair. Let us not lose heart. Let us keep hanging on to God. Let us keep knocking on heaven's door. Let us keep on praying until the day when Christ comes to take us home. When Christ comes to take us home, where we will live forever. Amen.